Malachi, I believe it's chapter 2 this morning. This is the old summer school of Old Testament studies. I hope that's all right. As I said, Simon gave me a choice, really, as to something of a theme to speak from for these four weeks. And um, I chose the book of Malachi. I thought it would be nice. I, I find it very helpful to get into the Old Testament and um, see how the Lord spoke to his people then because there's no change between the Old Testament and the New other than the fact that God has given us more revelation and he's given us more ability to live in the light of that revelation because we understand who Jesus was as we've just celebrated we understand that he broke the power of death and he's given us the ability of the Holy Spirit within us to live the life to which he calls us. So it boils down, it seems to me, to this, that we have no excuse. I think Colin Urquhart used to say, God forgives your sins, not your excuses. (laughs) And um, I find that challenging because I can often think of some good excuses. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that your grace has been available as we just sang about grace and mercy. From the beginning of the world, because Jesus was the lamb slain before the beginning of the world. The cross worked backwards as well as forwards. Thank you that your atonement in him is timeless. Your covenant through him is eternal. And your salvation in him has no limit. And so we do give you our worship this morning in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Yes, so we looked at one last week. Chapter 1, that is, of Malachi. And it's obvious as you read through that chapter that Judah, not Israel of course, northern Israel had gone into exile some 130 years beforehand. So Judah, herself as a nation, who was in the south of the promised land of Canaan, Judah herself by now was in desperate straits. Judah had lost any depth of love between herself and God. Judah's worship life was largely ritualistic and very shallow. The offering of blemished sacrifices that we looked at a little bit last week. And consequently, the people had no vision. You remember that proverb that says, without vision, the people perish. And Judah had no vision as to what God wanted to accomplish in and through her. And we saw how these things can easily apply to us in church life today. How, for example, the church in Ephesus, as John wrote to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, the church in Ephesus was cooling off in her love for God and the Spirit rebuked the church in Ephesus for that reason how the church in Laodicea was very happy about her material prosperity 
But that church itself was losing its love for God. But in the power of the Spirit, God spoke to those churches because he loved them. And he disciplined them. And he was bringing them by the grace of God. This is where grace is continually in evidence. He was bringing them by the grace of God to a place of renewal. And wasn't satisfied to leave them just going into spiritual oblivion. So these verses are very much written in Old Testament terminology. But they can have real application for us as we look at them and apply them to what we experience, both for ourselves and together as a community of faith, it's got real application to us. So let me read through the chapter two as we move on. And the prophet is still rebuking the nation for her failure to live in the good of God's grace. And he says, this admonition is for you, O priests. So he's functioning on the priests here. If you don't listen and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. Doesn't sound good, does it? And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. Great CV is given to Levi in those few verses. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction. Because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you've turned from the way. And by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You've violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. Because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Have we not all one father? This is Judah replying. Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, 
whoever he may be. May the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you've broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith. End the reading just at that place. Three words came to me really from having read that passage of scripture. The one is curse. The next is covenant. I've got them all to begin with C, which helps me. The one is curse. The one is covenant, and the one is commitment. Just as we reach this point in Malachi's prophecy, the heart of the prophet, by the way, perhaps you realise, but it's worth pointing out, was, was to bring the people to repentance. The heart of the prophet was to speak the word of God into national life in such a way as to convict them of their wanderings, of their spiritual casualness, of their failure to be obedient, and to bring them to a place of repentance so that the Lord might move graciously in their lives again. Again, we've got mercy and grace. But we need to call on the Lord for his mercy. We need to do that in our hearts. And not just assume, as Israel was tending to assume, that they will be okay. So this was the prophet at his stirring severity as he's speaking to the nation. And a bit of background would be good. I mentioned last week that Malachi spoke roughly at the same time as Nehemiah. He was the prophet who was active at the time of Nehemiah's work in Israel or in Judah. If we read the prophecies or or the histories, better still, histories of Ezra and Nehemiah, those two men actually brought their accounts in the way it was covered more than 100 years. So they're covering the period of time from roughly 540 BC before Jesus to approximately 430 before Jesus. So a period of about 110 years is covered by those two accounts that are given to us. 
in the Old Testament. Now, Nehemiah, Ezra really uh, came after the first group of exiles from Babylon, led by a man called Zerubbabel and Josiah, who was the priest. Zerubbabel was the governor. Josiah was the priest. And they brought back the first group of exiles from Babylon. And they were able to see, after some approximately 20 years, the temple rebuilt. It was a difficult 20 years. Haggai the prophet had to speak into that and say, come on, you're living in your panelled houses, you're doing nothing. I don't know if you remember the word of Haggai. But he says, the Lord is with you. And as you activate yourselves, you will discover how much he will enable you to do what he wants you to do. In other words, you do your bit and the Lord will do his. And of course, that, that word from Haggai the prophet really motivated the leaders and through the leaders stirred the people to do the work of rebuilding the temple. It was a good number of decades beyond that, four, five, eight, if I've got my date correct, when Ezra himself came back. And by then the nation had again drifted into spiritual disarray. And Ezra, being a priest, being a teacher, is able to focus them again on the law of God and bring them to a place of listening again to the voice of God, a place of repentance, a place of spiritual renewal, we would say today. But he really needed Nehemiah to come and work with him to be the man who would get the people back into action. And this was super. Superbly, what Nehemiah did when he came back about 445 BC, he came back to um, Jerusalem after having got permission from the king of Persia. Remember, he was his cupbearer. And he went and he was sad one day, and the king says, What's the matter with you? It was unusual for Nehemiah to be sad. And he said, I hear the city from which I come is in a dreadful state. The walls are broken down, the gates are also in complete disrepair and asked the king's permission to return which the king graciously gave him. Now, I don't know if you remember at all the account of Nehemiah but the work was established once he tackled the opposition that came his way. Works of God always stir up opposition, don't they? Stir up difficulty. Stir up people to oppose whatever God wishes to do. It's true now, it was true then. But Nehemiah, with Ezra's support, was able to overcome the opponents and the work to rebuild the walls, re-establish the gates, and make the city again a place of, of safety for the people of God was done in, we read, 52 days. And you remember that passage where the, the workers had their, <laughs> their, their, their weapons in one hand and the word of God in the other. You know, they, they did a remarkable job working every hour that God gave them in order to do the work he wanted them to do. And Nehemiah was the, the dynamo, as it were, the spirit-led dynamo behind the people that enabled that to happen. 
Before he went back to the king several years later, because it was still difficult to get them, bring the people together in a place of real unity, of agreement and action, Nehemiah agrees with them, with all the folk in Judah and all those who worked with him, a particular agreement that all of them agreed to and all of them signed up to. And we have that in Nehemiah chapter 10. So I want to read you a little bit. Because it was in the... The aspect of this agreement that Malachi was going to prophesy. And it says the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers. This is 10 of Nehemiah, verse 28. Singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So they're undertaking here to live in obedience. And just to sum up roughly, you can read it if you wish at some time, Nehemiah chapter 10, the agreement that they made. And this was it. Just five things. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. We promise not to trade on the Sabbath day, not to trade with other nations or to trade amongst ourselves. We promise to keep the Sabbath holy and other holy days as well. We promise to observe them. We will assume, we will take responsibility, number three, for carrying out the commands to give what we should under the law for the support of the temple and the maintenance of the sacrificial system. Number three. And the Levites will also play their part within that number three to do what they need to do to uphold the system of sacrifice. Number four. We will also be responsible for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, our herds and our flocks to the house of God, to the priests ministering there. They will bring what they need to by way of tithe to the house of God in Jerusalem. And finally, number five, we will give all that we need to give in terms of offerings to the Levites, in other words, the priestly people whom the nation, the other tribes, support. They had no support, the Levites, other than that which the people gave to them. And they gave that as a matter of provision under God's law. And they undertook to support the Levites with their tithes. So that was five things, quite simply, the people undertook to do 
in a binding agreement which they made. If I can now just drop on the verse. They made with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God and to obey his commands in those five elements. Now, Nehemiah, having brought the people to that place, soon after that, he returned back to the king. He was cupbearer, if you remember, to the king of um, Persia, which was the, the, the empire that was the world power of that time, was the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. How he went on, it was a period of time when he was back doing his old job and serving the wine and being a sort of royal butler. How he went on doing that from the work he'd done before in Jerusalem, I really don't know. It must have been a bit boring. But perhaps it wasn't. Perhaps serving the king was okay. But there came a time, several years later, when he became uneasy about the situation again in Jerusalem and asked the king if he could return. And what he found when he returned, we'll think about just in a mo. So let's go back to Malachi 2. As I said, the words that really came to me from this chapter, given the background of the agreement with Nehemiah, the words that occurred to me were curse were covenant and commitment. So straight away, Malachi admonishes the priests and says, I will send a curse upon you, speaking prophetically of the Lord. This is a message from God. I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them. Because you have not set your heart to follow me. We don't read about curse in the New Testament, do we? Not in any measure. The reason being, of course, that legally, I'll use that word advisedly, legally, Jesus has broken any curse that can affect us. Unless, of course, we make or give, <laughs> give permission curses to affect us unless of course we behave in such a way perhaps from, from our old lives where issues continue in our lives which we've not yet put right under the hand of God negative curses can certainly affect us but there are ways through always under the power of Jesus blood to deal with these things we need to recognize them we need to repent of them we need to renounce them and resist them. And as we do that, the power of the, any curse is broken because Jesus legally finished the work on the cross whereby the enemy no longer has ground to condemn us. We live by the, spirit, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's the law. That's the law that God has put in place. And where the spirit of Jesus is, there's freedom. But of course, in the time of the Old Testament, we read about blessings and curses in the law, under the law, that Moses speaks of in the book of Deuteronomy. And when you read through the curses, 
that occur in Deuteronomy 28 that Moses speaks about prophetically, it's shocking. I find it one of the most difficult reads of all in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28, where Moses is referring to the curses. But in Jesus, we can take particular note this morning that we've shared in bread and wine, the curse and the power of it is broken by the shedding of his blood. We cannot come to God on the ground of a blemished offering, can we? We can only come to him by the perfect offering made for us in the power of Jesus. Moses goes on to say, after he's spoken about these curses, when all these blessings and curses I've set before you, this is Deuteronomy 30, come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. See, remember that obviously the sign of circumcision under the Old Testament in the book of Genesis in the time of Abraham was the man had his foreskin circumcised. That act of circumcision was an outward act of commitment to the Lord God and to his purposes. But what the Lord was always looking for was an inner dimension of that where what was really circumcised was of the heart. What was really circumcised and set apart to God was the heart. So Moses puts it brilliantly here in prophecy. When all these blessings and curses I've set before you come upon you, you take them to yourselves wherever you've been banished, And whatever circumstances you're in, the Lord God will bring you back. And he'll cause you, by your own choice, to obey him. He will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. (laughs) Are we really living at the moment? No, I don't feel as regards Israel that that prophecy is yet fully worked out. It really isn't. But we're seeing it happen, I believe, in the days in which we're living. That's what excites me about reading these passages. Moses said that, didn't he, about whatever the date was, about 1200 BC. And that prophecy is still being worked out. Israel coming back from banishment and God will circumcise their hearts. Paul puts it brilliantly, doesn't he, to the Romans about the circumcision of the heart. In chapter 2 of Romans. Verse 
A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So the power of the curse is broken where the Spirit is, there is freedom, because he constrains us to live in a way that's more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's then that the Spirit goes on through Malachi to talk about the covenant. The covenant with Levi, he's he's speaking to the priests now. It struck me as significant as I read this, how the Spirit through the prophet is speaking to the priests. And you'll know that I've sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi might continue. He's not intending to break covenant with Levi. Northern Israel broke covenant and went into exile. And those who went into exile were largely lost in amongst the nations to which they were exiled. You know, through intermarriage, through interbreeding, through all of that. Praise God that some of the northern Israelites joined with Judah because they could say that at least Judah was continuing. And the Lord covenants here with the priests that no matter what state they're in in terms of disobedience or spiritual waywardness, he's going to continue his covenant with them. He's not going to break the agreement he's made with them. And he goes on to say just how powerful that covenant has been as they have been faithful to it in times past. If you look at the passage. But then he says in verse 8, You've turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You've violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty, as he speaks to the priests. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Now let the covenant or the people of Levi who were the priests let them represent ministers of religion in the UK today. Let the Levites spoken of here by the prophet represent ministers of religion in the UK today. I wonder, and just as you think along that line, well, see, the Levites were not making a prophetic impact on the nation. They were not communicating with any effectiveness the word of God to the nation. Are we, as a Christian people, as a Christian church in every small village, every town, every city, 
Is the message that's coming from the church understandable by the nation today? Is it prophetic for the nation today? Is it calling the nation to repentance today in the sense that anybody is taking any notice? Now, I'm not having a go at the church. I'm challenging myself. I've been a priest for quite a lot of my life in that sense of priest. And I need God's grace as much as anyone else. Because at the moment, the nation, spiritually speaking, is declining. And at the moment, the church is unable to speak a coherent word to prevent that. And that calls for a seeking of God. We're not in any significantly different position than was Judah back there, 400 or so years before Jesus. There are hundreds, thousands of church services going on today. But there are millions of people who are taking not a blind bit of notice. And as we prayed earlier on, the, the, the heart of God is that men and women should be saved. How are we missing it? Now, there's no, there's no big answer to that. It's just... I have to be faithful to the Lord in the way he leads me. You have to be faithful to the Lord in the way he leads you. We're all, you know, droplets in the ocean, aren't we? But my word, we have to respond. The gist of what I was trying to say last week was, will I press in or will I opt out? Will I press into the things of God and seek first his kingdom? Or will as a retired priest feeling a bit disillusioned because my church doesn't grow like to about 5,000 people? Well, I put my feet up and say it was too hard. Lord, you're too hard. You're expecting too much of me. Somebody in the parable said that, didn't he? He said, Lord, you're a hard man. You reap what you don't sow. I didn't do anything with my bit. I hid it in the ground. And he didn't receive any commendation from the Spirit of God. So the priests, yeah. Malachi's first rebuke in this chapter. I wonder what sort of mark the priests are getting in the UK today. As far as the Spirit of God is concerned, what sort of mark am I getting? (laughs) When Nehemiah originally prayed, before he spoke to the king, he prayed. Read Nehemiah chapter, he prayed. And he repented, first of all, for himself. He's in this. He's part of the mix. The situation is, the the nation was in, he took responsibility for it, as does every man of God. And we must all take our responsibility. So the priests are failing. And then we see the response of the nation. Judah has broken faith. Verse 11. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah's desecrating the sanctuary the Lord loves. He's marrying the daughter of a foreign god. What was the first 
item to which the people agreed in that covenant with Nehemiah. We will not marry the daughters of the nations around us. Neither will our sons accept their daughters for themselves. Remember the golden calf incident. And Moses gets before the Lord to intercede for the people. And he's begging the Lord. The Lord says, I'll cut this people off and I'll build up a nation through you. And Moses, please, the Lord will not do that. He says, the nations around will see that. And he pleads before the Lord. You see, the, God needed somebody to plead what he wanted to do anyway. He didn't want to, do, you know, kill off the nation whom he had chosen for himself. But he wanted somebody to pray that. He, would, he wants an intercessor. And there was one there in Moses. And he pleaded the Lord's presence to go with them once they broke camp, to, camp and moved on in their journey. And you remember what the Lord said, or what Moses said. If your presence doesn't go with us, we will be no different from any of the other nations. If your presence doesn't go with us, we're no different than the rest. And it makes me ask, how powerful, how strong is the presence of the Lord and the gathering of his people in the United Kingdom today? In such a way that the unbelieving part of the nation knows that God is present with the people. If the Lord isn't, isn't there, we're no different than the rest. And that's what Malachi is saying here. You're marrying the daughter of a foreign god. You're no different than the rest. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep, wail, because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Why? It's because the Lord is asking as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you've broken faith with her. The wife of your marriage covenant. You see, God is a covenant-making God. He makes covenant, he keeps covenant. Faithfully, passionately, he keeps covenant. Therefore, when we make vows in a marriage ceremony, in his presence, and sometime later break them, for any reason, I was, I was quite stirred when Reverend Michael down at um, St. Mary a few weeks ago, when I happened to be there, he said he published the bands of marriage for a certain couple. And he said, uh, the answer when they give up their vows will be, I do. Not, we'll see if it works and give it a try. And I thought, that was very good. Because that can be so often 
the attitude to take, but see if it works. But give it a go. Now, this isn't the best verse to use against divorce. Because the particular context of this verse is the situation where Jewish young men and women were marrying the, the young men and women of other nations. They were sacrificing, you know, their own individuality. And what God is concerned with is, is to protect the messianic line. He's concerned to protect the line of Judah from King David down the line of Judah to the Messiah. He's absolutely concerned with that. And the danger is that if, if, is, if Judah goes this way, she will, she will end up destroying herself as a nation. And that is exactly the thing which God is determined to prevent. He's determined that the Messiah will come from Judah. So that's the context here. Let me just read you what Nehemiah said at the end of his book in terms of the chaos caused in the nation because of intermarriage. Both Ezra and a few years later, Nehemiah, really challenged the people. I mean, more than challenged, they, they spoke directly against the people on the authority of God that they were not to marry foreign women. This is what Nehemiah says at the end of his account. In those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses curses. A man of God can bring curses. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. This sounds a bit physical to me. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many, many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Solomon was a king, and his name meant this, peaceful. He was particularly chosen by God to succeed David, who had been a man of war in his own situation. He needed to be a man of war. But Solomon was intended to bring peace to the nation. And his name meant that, from Shalom, Solomon. And instead of leading the generation into a place where she could have been at peace, and a significant nation in the, in, in the then known world, Solomon led the nation into civil war. 
And it was because of his idolatry with foreign women who, of course, passed on their false gods into his own being. And he could no longer rule effectively as the king there in the name of God and by the power of God and with the anointing of God. So it's for this reason that Malachi now here is is absolutely outraged by what is going on amongst the people, especially in the light of the covenant that had only been made a few years before. I hate divorce of the Lord God of Israel. I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. The people are called to keep covenant. And if they do so, they're blessed. Just as we're called to keep covenant, the new covenant that Jesus has made with us. And as we do so, we're blessed. So those three things, curse, covenant, and commitment. Because the Spirit of God says, guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Meaning in this case, a Jewish man marries a Jewish woman. It's to do with the genealogical continuation of the nation. And he finishes off, guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith. So that was my final word, friends. Curse, covenant, commitment. I just want to read you as I finish. Some other words from Solomon. King Solomon, when he was on a better day. He, of course, wrote the Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapter 4... He says this. It shows the incredible ways in which we can behave as people who know God but are not always faithful to him. Solomon led the nation into civil war when he was intended to be a king of peace. But now he says this. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. Circumcision of the heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart. Malachi said, guard your spirit and do not break faith. Above all else, Guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. 
Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. The eyes of Judah were everywhere. Particularly to the beauties of the other nations. Make level paths for your feet. And take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. Above all else, guard your heart. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Just as the priests were unfaithful, so the nation was unfaithful. What chance does the nation have if there's not a clear word coming from the priests? And Lord, we pray in our day that there will be a renewal, a spiritual revival. We pray that there will be a move of your grace amongst all those who minister in the name of Jesus. Lord God, the gospel will be proclaimed fully with power, authority, and anointing. Thank you, Jesus, that you're a man of authority. And the people saw that and they responded. May they respond to your voice in our day, Lord God, as the church has a new heart, a new vision to proclaim it. And may it all be, we ask, to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.